What is really needed by people going through a complicated divorce is case managers, somebody who will really help them figure out the logistics, the emotional side of it, what, how to get services for kids that they need, financial things that, that lawyers aren't necessarily the best experts at, and lawyers aren't trained to be the best case managers. Why are they the center of it rather than brought in when there's a particular legal issue or a legal problem? Hello, and welcome to another episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. Today's episode is an interesting one. It is selections from a joint keynote presentation that you, Julie, and a gentleman who we will describe shortly, <laughs> uh, that you did together for the Ontario Association of Family Mediators and the Ontario Collaborative Law Federation's first joint annual conference. That's it. And the gentleman who accompanied you to this and uh, is actually currently sitting a few feet away from us <laughs> listening as we record happens to be Bernie Mayer, who... Oh, it sounds I, familiar. It sounds very familiar, mm, right? Mm. As it turns out, he's your husband, Julie. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Bernie is a professor at Creighton University, and his area is conflict studies, and he has been a mediator as well. And he's always been a long-term supporter of NSRLP, for which we are very, very grateful. He's married to the NSRLP. He kind of has to be supportive, mm. yeah. <laughs> and he's also a very long-time uh, A to J advocate and um, an advocate of constructive approaches to dealing with conflict. And we were asked to do this keynote together which first seemed a little odd. Like, how do you do a joint keynote? But we did actually manage to figure it out mm -hmm. without getting divorced. <laughs> um, I should maybe also mention that when we were invited by the Ontario Association of Family Mediators and the Collaborative Law Fe Federation, they told us they were inviting us because we were the two most controversial people they knew, which <laughs> made me feel like maybe that's a low bar, but I kind of <laughs> liked it anyway. So I'm going to kind of do a thumbnail sketch of what people are going to hear, because as you said, it's excerpts mm -hmm. from the, uh, the talk that we gave. And I think this might just give people a little bit of a structure. So we started off each of us by setting the room, and remember this is a room of professionals, we set them a challenge each. And my challenge was that they have to start to see access to justice as a threshold issue. In other words, not something you think about some ways on in your practice or some ways on in any particular case. Access to justice is the threshold mm. issue of 2019. It's about getting people a voice and a place in the system. And Bernie also set up his own challenge, which was related, which was how do people who really care about conflict resolution make a difference to the wider culture mm. on how we handle conflict? And then we did two more things, which are featured in these excerpts. We talked very frankly about the things that are holding us back. And the the word us here means the professional community. We talked about paternalism and changing times and how now what is necessary is to collaborate with clients, not just tell them what to do or tell them to trust us. And in addition, the problem that we have of being able to focus on what's really going on for families in conflict because of the incredibly complex rules and procedures 
that the legal system has created over the last 150 years. And then the last bit is about facing the system problems that we, we, the professional community, have created. We talk about the controversy around the unauthorized practice of law and try to suggest a fairly simple and radical solution to that. There should be no such thing. We talk about the costs of legal services, which, of course, are uppermost in the minds of, of clients. And we also talk about the fact that the people in that room don't like the current system. Mm -hmm. They want people to mediate. They want people to resolve their conflicts outside the courts. But the courts are what we have at the moment. And so there is a real urgency to this group getting behind in-court programming and support and assistance for self-represented litigants. And I just want to say for our listeners, I, I know you you know, weren't sure, you were a little concerned that this being a keynote for a specific group of professionals, you know, you were worried whether it would be interesting to everybody out right. there. And for me, as I was listening to these excerpts, I found it really interesting. And I think part of that is that you kind of get to be a fly on the wall of a specific set of professionals talking about their issues. In this case, of course, it's legal professionals trying to solve some of the fundamental issues within the legal system. And I think that that is valuable for a lot of our listeners who often struggle with whether the legal profession is attempting to do make a difference and do they care. And I think that yeah. this helps to humanize and it, it makes it clear that, yes, they do care. And, you know, a significant proportion of them are trying to figure out ways to make the system work better for everybody. Certainly um, the people in that room. And, yes. and they included, by the way, also mental health professionals and financial specialists because collaborative lawyers have always tried to work with, with other professionals. But they're all people invested in the existing system. Yes. And yeah. we all have to face that responsibility when we think about change. So it seemed appropriate to ask somebody who was in the room to do the outro today. Mm -hmm. So the final little introduction here is to Christopher Arnold, Chris Arnold, who is a family lawyer in Ottawa. He focuses on family mediation and collaborative family law. He has been very supportive as well of NSRLP for some years now. And he's going to add at the end his reflections of what it felt like to be in that room and how people were reacting to the somewhat frank and blunt challenges <laughs> that Bernie and I were throwing out there. So we have two challenges. So my challenge. I'm proposing to you today that access is the threshold issue here and that unless we can ensure access to, unfortunately, a, an extremely imperfect but current system of family justice, we cannot give people the confidence that those other principles are really going to be relevant and important to them. Uh, this is actually, in, in many ways, you know, for me as a law professor, something that I have become increasingly frustrated about uh, in the last 10 years, because we have fabulous programs at law school now, fabulous courses where we teach students about international human rights, we teach them about minority rights issues, we have more and more expertise in those areas of systemic unfairness and how the legal system can address those issues. But it seems to me that we are kind of walking with a blindfold on if we imagine that people who can't access any of those opportunities and people who can't afford to get legal assistance and people who can't actually struggle through on their own 
that we're really making those things a reality. My challenge today to us all is how do we ensure access? And if we don't ensure access, how do we make ourselves relevant? I mean, I, I truly believe, and I know Bernie does too, that this particular room, there is an enormous amount of commitment to families, commitment to good processes, commitment to just outcomes. But we have to figure out this access piece if we're really going to make our work relevant. My challenge to myself and all of us is how do we make a difference in the public culture? in the systemic sources of the problem? And how do we deal with the reality with how family disputes are really dealt with in our society on a broad level? And how do we also avoid becoming enablers of a dysfunctional system? Now, I've long been concerned that, and my, my work was in, in mediation more than in not so much in collaborative practice, but how do we avoid becoming a boutique service? that for the right group of people works very well, but for many, many other people just isn't available, just doesn't work, and doesn't make a major, a major difference. I think this is a problem in one way or another we've been facing for at least 20 years ago. I would love to see the principles and the techniques and the skills we have be brought to many, many more people in a much broader way. But one thing that we have to be very aware of is what is a form of our own confirmation bias, which is when we see a problem of this scale, we all tend to see this through the lens that says, what we offer is the solution. If we offer collaborative practice, then we need more collaborative practice. If we offer you know, family uh, conferencing, we need more family conferencing. If we were to offer mediation, then we need more mediation. All of these things are great, but none of them is a solution to all. And what we have to welcome is a much more systemic, broader range kind, kind of, of answer to it. A lot of this came up around the Bancala report in Ontario where I felt like whatever you thought was right or wrong, I thought the reaction of our own professional communities, particularly in dispute resolution, was so defensive and so much saying, hey, this is a problem, but we, what we need is more of what we offer, that we really missed an opportunity, I think. Getting past paternalism is a reflection of just how hard we still find it to incorporate the public in our consultations, in our ideas building. I mean, I would like to see members of the public of every professional conference because I think something that people don't fully understand if they're not as immersed as I am, unfortunately, and it is a mad world, in the world of self-representation is that there are lots and lots of people out there with some great ideas, with some important insights, who are just as well educated as everybody in this room and who have their experience to, to support some of what they're going to be proposing and asking for. So I think that we're still in the justice system really kind of stuck around this idea of we are the experts and you are the clients and we will tell you what is good for you. We could kind of get away with it 20 years ago with the paternalism stuff, but the internet has changed everything. And, you know, I've written a little bit about this in the new edition of The New Lawyer, and, you know, there are many people wiser than me who are writing about it too, but 
This has profoundly changed how people think about the delivery of every kind of service. It's not just us that are getting picked on here. So I think that we have to realize that we will be called out and we are seen as paternalistic because we are still often stuck in this idea that we must know, we must know better. Bernie? We have to understand just how fully we are baked into the system, family justice system, and how much that has kind of, of necessity forced us to practice the way we do. As a result, we have to create a system where we have, have to provide assistance to people with complex rules, which makes it harder and harder for people to actually focus on what their real problems are. And that just governs so much of how we've structured our, 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 our services, which we have to think about ways of breaking out of, and which also says why we're uh, not the answer, we, we can be part of it. Those of you from the collaborative movement will have heard me talk when I was doing my research on collaborative family law many years ago now about the problem of orthodoxies. I was going to say the Marxist-Leninist version of collaborative law. That's what I have written down here. And Bernie has written a comment in the margin. I wouldn't use the Marxist-Leninist word. <laughs> Well, we're not exactly talking about Stalinists. No, no. It works for me, though. Um, you know, we have these very long debates about what the pure models are. We have very long debates about what pure models of mediation are. And, I mean, I've been part of these debates. I've been part of these debates. And I think it's increasingly clear to me that we like the certainty of an orthodoxy. You know, I always used to joke that lawyers who escaped the adjudicative system and did mostly dispute resolution work were kind of replacing the certainty of the adjudicative system with, you know, orthodoxy around dispute resolution practice. It's a kind of weird refraction of the way that our brains have been trained to, you know, follow the rules. And again, I think that that's one of the things that we, we can't really explain clearly to the public. You know, when the debate was going on before Boncarlo uh, about the use of paralegals, I was uh, one day on a stage in, in Ottawa, actually, it was here, with the then treasurer of the Law Society. And uh, it was a public audience. It was actually the Ottawa Writers' Festival. And there was, this was a session on access to justice, so it was mostly members of the public in the audience. And somebody asked the treasurer, why can't paralegals do some things? And the, and, the, <laughs> and the treasurer said, I really feared for his safety at this moment, trust us, we're telling you they just can't. And, and again, I mean, I think that's partly paternalism and it's partly about orthodoxies. More and more people, and very inconveniently in many ways, are saying they don't want a lawyer or somebody to assist them who simply takes over the file. They're saying that they want to have a foot in it. Now, I think one of the things that's so interesting about this is it does reflect what the collaborative lawyers have been saying for a long time, which is that people need to be part of solving their own problems. And in fact, one of those principles talks about that. So increasingly, you have the public saying, we want to be part of solving our own problem. We also want a lower bill at the end. So, you know, give me my jobs and you have your jobs and let's collaborate 
Now, it's starting to change, but it's starting very slowly. And this idea of coaching, I would invite you to think about. I mean, we have been actually using this as a model in Windsor for our law students for the last couple of years. Coaching is procedural help. Coaching is legal information. Coaching is sitting in Tim Hortons and having a cup of coffee. Coaching is getting somebody ready to go in to a case management conference or to a mediation. And coaching is something that many, many people are looking for. And this comes directly out of my data and from the data um, of others as well. I'd like to talk just for a few minutes about what it means to really face the system. The lawyer's monopoly of the family justice system is a major problem. And it's not just in the family system. It's other systems, too. But let's stick with families for the moment. I'm sure some of you are familiar with Jillian uh, Hadfield's work, in which uh, she really argues that the only way of really making significant system change is to have much more competition. And that means competition for who provides services. And I think we have to face the fact that we, the, we have lawyers in the legal uh, system, A, govern themselves, regulate themselves, and use the unauthorized practice of law to stifle competition. And there's lots of examples about that. The reaction to having paralegals doing some of the work, which wouldn't have been a total solution by any means, but was an example of what could be done to, to deal with that, was one important example of that, of that. I would go so far as to say, why are lawyers at the center of the process? What is really needed by people going through a complicated divorce is case managers, somebody who will really help them figure out the logistics, the emotional side of it, what, how to get services for kids that they need, financial things that, that lawyers aren't necessarily the best experts at, and lawyers aren't trained to be the best kept case managers. Why are they the center of it rather than brought in when there's a particular legal issue or a legal problem? Why don't we really rethink a whole system around that? Why do we have very strict gateways that say you can't use the unauthorized practice of law unless you prove that it's absolutely essential, for, not for the safeguard of the profession, but for the safeguard of the public, and not for the safeguard of the public in some abstract way that this could happen, but in a very concrete, direct way where if you don't do it, somebody's really going to get hurt. And I think you'll find the answer is we almost don't need, we almost don't need the unauthorized practice of law uh, regulations at all. By doing that, by having a much broader sense of who can provide services, paralegals can provide services, financial managers can provide services, real estate people can provide services, insurance prof professionals can provide services, social workers can do case management because they, they're supposedly trained in that, etc., etc. We then can create a genuine competition. And we can't, of course, move on from the system roots without talking about costs, like, because this is what members of the public are the most up in arms about and the most disturbed by and represent, I think, the most you know, profound exclusion for them. You know, we graduate students out of law school now always with debt, and that's a huge, huge problem, especially for students who aren't necessarily placed to have 
easy access to well-paying jobs, who want to do social justice work, and who may not have other kinds of supports. It's a huge problem. But, you know, it's kind of the problem we've created. And unfortunately, what happens is that that is used as one of many justifications for the fact that the hourly rate that lawyers command is still well in excess of most other comparable professionals. I mean, you all know this, so I don't need to repeat it, but it's very hard to find a family lawyer who charges less than $500 an hour. And I couldn't tell you how many people write to us every single day saying, wait, what? Like, why? And we can write back and say things like they've had a long training and they've got lots of student debt to pay and they've got a fancy office to upkeep or whatever it might be. But people don't get it. They just don't get it. And I don't have a good answer. I mean, I really don't have a good answer when I'm confronted with that question over and over again. Oh, well, that person is a very senior person. That's why actually it's $750 an hour. You know, it's, it's just not working. These answers aren't working. Now, I'm not trying to suggest, because I do know better, that family lawyers are out there making a fortune, because I know they're not. But they are still very reluctant to give up some of the things that are making it so expensive to practice law, and those costs get passed on to their clients. You know, there is a new generation now practicing law off their laptops. And I know that that's not for everybody, but it sure saves on overhead. And I think that, you know, we're still very reluctant to give up some of these trappings that, you know, this is the irony that I see all the time in the work that I do. Lawyers often think that they need to have, you know, a kind of cool-looking office on Main Street because that will impress their clients. Well, that might have impressed their clients 20 years ago. Like, that might have impressed my parents' generation, right? I can imagine them coming and saying, oh, this lawyer must be good. They've got a really fancy office. That's not what people say today. They say, why has this lawyer got such a fancy office? And is that why I'm paying what I'm paying? The question is completely different. And again, I'm not saying there's an easy solution here. I'm not suggesting you all, like, put tents on the street or anything. Because the people in my study, 50%, more than 50% of them had had lawyers, we did get some data on how much money they'd spent. And, you know, it was typical for people to spend thirty dollars or $40,000, which for most of us is a lot of money. One of the things we talk about a lot is how people who work in dispute resolution can find a balance between remaining committed to the fact that we don't like this system. We want this system to be different. I mean, I'm not, neither is it trying to suggest that everybody in this room thinks that the current family justice system is a great model. We have many ideas for how it can be different. You know, and moving it into an administrative from an adjudicative frame is probably one of the most important. And we've started to see that happening in other countries. It makes a very big difference. But here's the problem. That's not now. And in the work that I do, I see people all the time who need help right now. And I think that sometimes we have difficulty with recognizing that this is an immediate problem that needs some immediate solutions, and at the same time keeping our eyes on the prize, which is long-term change. We can't leave without giving you some of the suggestions that we would 
recommend you think about, and they may in fact be things that you've already talked about in your groups. The first one is support in court programming. I know that for many of you, you don't want to go anywhere near the court. You, you know, the whole point of doing the practice that you're doing is because you don't want to go to court. And believe me, I sympathize. And believe me, so do self-represented litigants. They don't want to go there either, but they have to. And I think that we really have to accept that, and that means supporting local in-court programming that does provide some resources and some assistance to people who are self-reps. Um, the second one, ramp up your own educational and client training resources. And this actually comes a little bit to the lady's point over here as well. There are lots of resources out there. There are lots of free resources on our website that have been developed specifically for people representing themselves. You know, for years as mediators, we've offered people, here's a leaflet that says mediation is, you will make a consensus decision, blah, blah, blah. Nobody, you know, I asked everybody who I interviewed in my study, hundreds of people. Uh, they all came from jurisdictions in which there was some form of mandatory or at least, you know, offer of family mediation. Almost none of them could even remember that leaflet. And I would really encourage you to try to innovate with cost packages. You know, one of the things that, that um, I don't know whether any of you know about the Walmart Law Group. This is a group of uh, U of T grads who set up, you know, like next to the dry cleaners and the photo booth in, in Walmart. And they're doing um, non-contentious work, but they're doing cost packages. And what's so interesting about them is that they come from, these, these, these guys who founded Walmart Law come from a retail background before they went to law school. And they told me this, which I've never forgotten. Consumers are savvy. They shop online all the time. If you say to them, here is a list of what you're able to get in this package, and here is a list of what you're not able to get, and this is what this package costs, and if you want these services in addition, this is the extra, they get it. People get it. Because that's the way that they actually run their lives in terms of making those cost decisions. Obviously, we have talked all along about working with paralegals and procedural coaches. We use law students um, in this role in Windsor, and I would encourage you to think about that, where their knowledge is going to be sufficient. Lobby for more public legal aid and programming, which in Ontario right now is a very sad thing to say, but it's definitely needed. Uh, um, and you can be part of that. You need to be part of that, you know, because that's what's happening right now. Uh, work with the judiciary, which I know a lot of you have done too, to better facilitate SRL access to settlement and mediation services. And understand that part of our professional ethical responsibility is to advocate for systemic changes. So on that note, we are going to stop. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, my name is Chris Arnold. I'm a lawyer, mediator, and collaborative practitioner here in Ottawa, Ontario. Julie and Bernie, I guess despite being able to be charged with being academics, still seem to be completely in touch with what it means to both practice family law on what I guess you could call the front lines, and much more importantly, able to telegraph to us as practitioners the realities of being someone who is separating or divorcing in Ontario and having to navigate systemic challenges while trying to resolve the issues that arise 
from, from a separation in real time. The main points of, of the presentation ended up challenging all of us listening on, on lots of different levels. Many of these problems seem utterly resistant to real solutions in the system are in a real conflict of interest as essentially the adaptations to the system required will require less of those people in power. Ultimately, they are too expensive. Ultimately, they are tend to be rules bound. They are not necessarily all that interested in helping real people with the real issues that those people are facing they instead would rather remain in their place of, of authority and their place of power and, and pontificate about how the rules, how th these rules that I understand and you don't apply to your situation and control it. The, the family justice system is a default dispute resolution system. If you can't work it out yourself, this is the only place that you can go for real solutions. And by real solutions, I mean you're accessing the power of the state to impose a resolution on your recalcitrant and uh, impossible to work with spouse. That power needs to be wielded carefully, but everyone now can at least pay more than lip service to, but can get aboard the view that the system as it, as it currently exists is teetering on the brink of collapse. The podcast really puts our nose to these problems that the public want more control, they don't want the lawyer to take over, and the individual is interested in solutions, not a rules-bound adjudicative model. The solutions provided, uh, certainly all um, interesting in terms of increasing. I think if each of us actually did the things suggested, more than likely, our practice lives not only would become more pleasant in that we'd be churning out happier people, dealing with happier clients, less angst, but they'd likely be more profitable. The, the increase on the education part and the challenge to be innovative, I thought was very uh, engaging. And it, it just right down to the brass tacks of, of it, I, I know that I, I over and over, we'll have the same conversation, relay the same information over and over to individual clients or individual prospective clients in, a, in an initial con consultation. How much of that could be captured in a good video with you know, that sort of whiteboard uh, explainer that where the, the voiceover is explaining it, but the whiteboard is actually turning it into pictures? so as to increase uptake of the information. I'm embarrassed to say that probably 75 to 85% of what I say in a first consultation could easily be downloaded to that. Saves them time, saves me time, and then when the individual client calls me, they'll have already have seen that, and we can get right down to business, meaning we can, I can cut my costs, they cut their costs, and I guess the access to justice meter ticks upward. Uh, I agree with Bernie's statement that what people need are case managers and not uh, people who to take over the file, to take over the, uh, the entirety of it. I'm, I'm conflicted with the, 
the exhortation to become invested in the justice system to help it improve. I, I'm unfortunately a bit of a radical and think that it kind of needs to be burned to the ground and to, to start again. It's, it's simply too confrontational at its very core, at its very DNA, and I don't think it can really be fixed. I really did enjoy the, uh, the, the podcast. In fact, the, the re-listening to it that I, I had the pleasure of doing prior to um, recording this uh, brief commentary was um, basically tickled all the same neurons. In fact, it was an invitation to go back and ruminate further and not just ruminate further, but see how I could action some of the things that I know would make my practice better and allow me to deliver services in a way that would really assist individuals in moving their individual family restructuring forward in a way that they find you know more efficient and ultimately more effective. In Other News. Welcome back to another segment of In Other News, where we share some updates from the world of access to justice. First up, last week, leaders of 50 justice organizations in British Columbia joined Attorney General David Eby and Chief Justice of British Columbia Robert Bauman to mark the signing of the Access to Justice Triple Aim, which will guide initiatives and reforms for making family and civil justice more accessible to British Columbians. The goal has three interrelated elements. One, improving access to justice at the population or subpopulation level. Two, improving the experience of users who need access to justice. And three, improving costs, which includes reducing costs in other sectors because of the benefits of improved access to justice. We've linked to a short article on this topic, which includes some words from David Eby and Chief Justice Bauman, who we mentioned earlier, and also Jennifer Muller, self-represented litigant and member of the A to J B C Leadership Group and Steering Committee, as well as a member of the NSRLP Advisory Board, and our guest from the very first episode of the Jumping Off the Ivory Tower podcast back in September 2017. For our second story, we're linking to a recent podcast from the Lawyerist series on the Legal Talk Network. While the Lawyerist podcast has a broad scope, this particular episode is all about access to justice and includes an in-depth conversation with Professor Rebecca Sandifer about why people rarely turn to lawyers or courts for assistance with their problems, how to properly educate civilians on obtaining legal help, and what role small and solo firm lawyers play in the solution. Professor Sandifer is a name some of our listeners might recognize, given her extensive research into access to justice in the United States particularly through her role as faculty fellow at the American Bar Foundation, where she founded and leads the Foundation's Access to Justice Research Initiative, as well as her position as Associate Professor of Sociology and Law at the University of Illinois, and most recently, her research with a project called The Roles Beyond Lawyers. The podcast is 48 minutes long, but is definitely worth adding to your to-do list. 
given that next week is our last episode for the season, it doesn't hurt to start experimenting with other podcasts. Lastly, in case you missed it, NSRLP announced last week that we have two new members joining the NSRLP Advisory Board, Justice David Price and Ms. Jana Sirasevic. Justice David Price of the Brampton Superior Court is a longtime friend of the NSRLP. Before his appointment to the bench, Justice Price was the president of the Etobicoke Conflict Mediation Team for Community Mediation and Restorative Justice. Justice Price has attended both NSRLP dialogue events, both in 2013 and 2018, and was one of our A to J All-Stars in 2014. Jana is a former SRL who took part in Julie's original study, and since then, she's written for and volunteered with the NSRLP, has helped to organize a Toronto SRL support group, and has personally supported many SRLs through their cases. Jana is a graduate of York University with a degree in psychology, has a certificate in rehabilitation services from York University and Seneca College, holds a diploma in addiction studies from McMaster University, and a graduate certificate in pain management from the University of Alberta. Both new board members bring a wealth of experience, and we're excited to have their perspectives going forward. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next week for our last episode of the season, featuring an audio play telling the story of a lawyer who gets hit on the head by Julie's book, The New Lawyer. The play is called Whacked, a legal farce in one act, and is written by Mika Perk O'Connell. You won't want to miss it.